Here are some excerpts from The Bohemian Grove and Other Retreats, A Study in Ruling Class Cohesiveness by G. William Domhoff. Politicians apparently find the lakeside talks especially attractive. Given a lakeside provides them with a means for personal exposure without officially violating the injunction, weaving spiders come not here. After all, Bohemians rationalize that a lakeside talk is merely an informal chat by a friend of the family. Some members, at least, know better. They realize that the Grove is an ideal off-the-record atmosphere for sizing up politicians. Well, of course, when a politician comes here, we all get to see him, and his stock in trade is his personality and his ideas, a prominent Bohemian told a New York Times reporter who was trying to cover Nelson Rockefeller's 1963 visit to the Grove for a lakeside talk. The journalist went on to note that the midsummer encampments have long been a major showcase where leaders of business, industry, education, the arts, and politics can come to examine each other. And then a little further on in this, uh, this book, quote, For 1971, President Nixon was to be the featured lakeside speaker. However, when newspaper reporters learned that the president planned to disappear into a redwood grove for an off-the-record speech to some of the most powerful men in America, they objected loudly and vowed to make every effort to cover the event. The flap caused the club considerable embarrassment, and after much hemming and hawing back and forth, the club leaders asked the president to cancel his scheduled appearance. A White House press secretary then announced that the president had decided not to appear at the Grove rather than risk the tradition that speeches are strictly off the public record. However, the president was not left without a final word to his fellow bohemians. In a telegram to the president of the club, which now hangs at the entrance to the reading room in the San Francisco clubhouse, he expressed his regrets at not being able to attend. He asked the club president to continue to lead people into the woods, adding that he in turn would redouble his efforts to lead people out of the woods. He also noted that while anyone could aspire to be president of the United States, only a few could aspire to be president of the Bohemian Club. And again, that was from The Bohemian Grove and Other Retreats, a study in ruling class cohesiveness by G. William Domhoff. Um, Nixon himself offered some thoughts uh, of his own in one of his many, many taped conversations that he had in the Oval Office. Now, he was talking to H.R. Alderman and John Ehrlichman. They were known as... uh, Uh, his Berlin Wall, because along with Henry Kissinger, they formed a kind of um, divider between him and, you know, the rest of his staff in the White House and the staff in the Pentagon and so on and so forth. Here is a snippet of the conversation that Nixon had about the Grove with Alderman and Ehrlichman. Let's look at Northern California. You understand? Yeah. You know what's happening. San Francisco just gone. It's clear over. I know that, but it isn't. It isn't just down in the ranch part of town. But the upper class in San Francisco is that way. The Bohemian Grove that I attend on time to time. The Easterners and the others that come there. But it is the most faggy goddamn thing you will ever imagine. The San Francisco crowd that goes in there. It's just terrible. I mean, I don't want to shake hands with anybody in San Francisco. Really? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different set of values. 
had a dream about this place. Welcome to episode 34 of Ghost Stories for the End of the World. Hope you're good. Um, I need to stop whispering the off the world bit. It was funny the first three times, but I think it's it's wearing a bit now, isn't it? Um, so yeah, we're about, um, I think we're about seven episodes into our Season of the Witch miniseries now. Uh, you know, exploring the, the murk of the 1960s and the 1970s in America. And while it's been an interesting sort of experiment, you know, with a, a non-linear format, I think that at this point we're in danger of getting a little bit turned around on our journey up the river, so to speak. So what I'm proposing is that for the first, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes of this episode, we kind of dock our boat, it's not a euphemism, and take a moment to sit on, on the muddy banks and reflect on where we've been so far before we continue onwards and by the way i do apologize for the long um gap between the halloween special and this one it's been absolute murder trying to find um time to get this one down and get this one recorded but you know we're sweet now so yeah what we'll find is that a major theme of season of the witch has been uh one of transition you know the 1960s of course that was a period of huge upheaval around the world and at the time you had people who thought it genuinely was a kind of second renaissance and you had others who thought that it was it was armageddon and i've seen it described um at least from a western perspective as a people who were riding fat and high and happy on the post-war economic boom times and suddenly they were confronted with what amounted to a a kind of mass spiritual crisis you know that that resulted from all these leap forwards in uh you know science uh, technology in the economy had a lot of people questioning the old assumptions you know and this huge churn you know the changes that were going on in society and in politics well that's mirrored in what was happening in the the deep politics of the era and i think you know a chief catalyst for for that intensified speed of change is pretty obviously uh the assassination of jfk um i'm recording this on the 21st uh barring a few tweaks it should be up in the next couple of days and of course the anniversary of that uh hit is uh tomorrow um now, if you do cleave to the theory that he was killed by um, rogue elements of the U.S. state, then you have to really get your mind around the fact that um, a cabal of 
right-wing business interests and dirty politicians and spooks and gangsters conspired to execute the leader of the Western world and install a more compliant head of state in the figure of Lyndon Johnson. Uh, and make no mistake, you know, if if we are talking in those terms, then what we're discussing is a coup d'etat and a, an extremely successful one. And once they realized that they could do that and that they could assassinate their own president and game the system so they would never come back on them, there were no remaining shackles. You know, they were free to do as they pleased. And the fact that the Dallas operation doesn't even represent the peak of their power, that says quite a lot about how liberating the JFK hit was for them. Um, for my money, the peak would come much, much later. Uh, we're talking during the years spanning the beginning of the Reagan admin through maybe to 9-11. Um, and then the invasion of Iraq is where that, that, uh, that wave kind of broke and, and we're living in the, uh, the aftermath of that now as it reconstitutes itself into something different. Now, as we've seen so far in Season of the Witch, the, the theatre of clandestine operations became much more warped and uh, fractal and, dare I say, even you know psychedelic during the 60s and the 70s. Uh, so in our first episode with Matt Chrisman, uh, the American Years of Lead, we discussed the rise of the new left and its near uh, complete failure to engage with and navigate um, the class politics and the, the security apparatus effectively. Yeah. Um, we touched on how the FBI and the CIA kind of accurately judged that the black liberation movement uh, was the truly viable threat to US imperial power, um, not the you know, white-led radical outfits like the Weather Underground and the SDS. And the the spooks just about managed to neutralize the black uh, radical movement with a, a series of breathtakingly vicious operations. Uh, so you had, you know, the uh, assassination of people like Fred Hampton and Martin Luther King, um, Malcolm X as well, uh, the use of undercover agents and disinformation campaigns, you know, infiltration, penetration of all these different groups. All of this demonstrated the cost of challenging the established order. And thereafter, the, the Nixon administration uh, backed the security state as it, it flooded black communities with heroin and, you know, used this in turn to kind of dull the sharp edge of uh, unrest and insurrection in inner city areas and justify a war on drugs, you know. Uh, mass incarceration and you know the escalation um, the escalating militarization of the police and the white radicals uh, who understood the new rules eventually kind of reconciled themselves with the state of things and they were uh, allowed to re-enter society in the end with very little fuss once they got bored of you know living underground of living the life of a revolutionary now another theme that we've explored is the emerging technologies of power at the time. Uh, so in our episodes about MKUltra and Ronald Stark, we explored how the CIA used drugs in its search for mind control and spread LSD directly and indirectly, you know, as a means to disrupt and divert the, the developing counterculture. And as money laundering and financing for organized crime and intelligence operations became increasingly complex and sophisticated, 
outfits like the Brotherhood of Eternal Love told themselves uh, they were spreading the Holy Sacrament of LSD while becoming uh, more and more enmeshed in these, these dark networks of high finance and banking. And the CIA was becoming increasingly adept at infiltrating agents and assets into organizations and then slowly and very carefully replacing every significant link with agency-approved staff. Uh, Ronald Stark did it to the Brotherhood and the more upper crust Ivy League and military connected elements at Langley would eventually do exactly the same thing to Howard Hughes's empire. And they were also moving against the mob as well. Uh, increasingly, they were kind of cutting their ties to the, the street aspect of the criminal underworld and tying up loose ends, you know, people like Johnny Roselli and San Giancana as increasing scrutiny was brought to bear on their assassination programs and the the relationship between the CIA and organized crime. And in retrospect, it feels very much like the agency had predicted that operations were going to evolve into a much more, um, for lack of a better term, more globalized, uh, more diffuse affairs as the 70s rolled along. Um, in-house jobs became harder to plan and protect. Uh, and, you know, the neoliberal turn was drawing closer. And then in our two-part with um, Bryce Belden, we took this idea of emerging technologies a step further, and we examined California as a kind of uh, laboratory for drugs and other methods of social control. And, you know, political and religious cults sprang up around the Bay Area throughout the late 60s and 70s, while... A series of violent, terrifying murders were committed by a succession of uh, serial killers and thrill killers who all emerged from a remarkably small geographical area, you know, and, and who were all, at least in some way, influenced by this prevailing atmosphere of imperial violence abroad, paranoia at home, and, you know, in more than a few cases, personal or professional connections to the US military industrial complex. So we've got transition, and we've also got adaptation. Um, another example of how confident the, the security state was feeling at, at this moment in time comes from two different angles with the assassination of RFK in that, you know, that pivotal year of 1968. Now, as we discussed with Jimmy Fallon Gong, we looked at how they felt um, secure enough to kill RFK in the first place and smart enough to recognize that leaving some loose threads to dangle, you know, and letting some glaringly obvious holes burn through the official narrative actually worked to their benefit in this case because it reinforced a, a widespread disillusioned sense that America really was governed by an untouchable secret power elite of, you know, schemers and killers. And when your own government, you know, is telling you that your eyes are lying, you know, where are you supposed to turn for um, uh, justice, I suppose? And again, 1968 was a, a truly pivotal year. Along with RFK, we've also got uh, Martin Luther King, who was assassinated. The Tet Offensive in Vietnam, uh, kicked off the festivities in January, and this was used as a, a justification by the the U.S. Empire to increase the size and scope of the the newly inaugurated Phoenix program. And Phoenix will be the subject of an upcoming episode, so 
uh, don't get too worried about us getting lost in the weeds on Phoenix just yet. The My Lai massacre happened on the same day that RFK announced his intention to run. And uh, somewhat ominously, the man whose job it was to cover up the massacre for the US Army was uh, Colin Powell, who was a guy who would, of course, go on to play important roles in a series of um, deep events in the following decades. He's lurking in the picture everywhere from Iran-Contra to the invasion of Iraq. And back in 1968, you know, in the aftermath of the King and Kennedy hits, this is when, you know, peace and love kind of gave way to tear gas and barricades and the game generally got rough, as they say. Tonight, I'm hoping to find a way to talk about Richard Nixon and his America without talking about Watergate directly. Um, the Chapo Trap House guys and um, Michael S. Judge of Death is Just Around the Corner uh, all did, you know, uh, great episodes covering Watergate. So there's not much point me retreading um, that ground. So I'd suggest, you know, you guys go check out their episodes about it if you want like detailed breakdowns of the affair. Uh, but I'll just add, you know, I'm in agreement with them that it was 100% a, a good old-fashioned CIA rat-fucking and Nixon was the one being fucked. Terrible image to to plant in the unwary listener's head, but I, there, I've done it now. So um, Now, obviously, I am not American, so I can't speak with like 100% confidence on what Nixon meant in terms of American history. Um, but I generally, I generally try not to lean on cliches, but if ever there was a man who embodied the tensions and, and contradictions of his time, it was um, Tricky Dick. And we have to talk about him because he was the manager of the empire during this, this crucial period of time. He oversaw the transition from the 60s to the 70s. And of course, we can't possibly do a massively exhaustive account of his life and his presidency, but what we can do instead, I think, is wade into the Nixon mind goo and you know examine a few interesting spoonfuls of gooey intrigue to see what we can learn about him and the country that he was um, ostensibly in charge of during that window of time. Because you see, if we're talking about political experiments in emerging technologies of power, then we'd be remiss if we didn't point out that Richard Nixon was himself a beneficiary of just such an experiment, and he was eventually his victim, you know, in as much as someone like Richard Nixon can ever be a victim of anything. Um, you see, Nixon really was a self-made man in uh, some ways. He was a schmoozer. He was an artiste of ooze and he was selected by what he called the committee of 100 to front their attempt to beat back the kind of milk toast reform attempts of a democrat called jerry Voorhis in the california congressional district election of 1946 but you know self-made is kind of a strange term to use when describing nixon because he he knew which asses to kiss you know, he knew who to network with, but he owed his rise to power entirely to his willingness to make himself the errand boy of this emerging power elite, as C. Wright Mills called it. Now, although he's kind of his red baiting 
anti-communist uh, bona fides and close links to Joe McCarthy and Roy Cohn had endeared him to the, the emerging middle and upper class of the Southwest. And he hated the, the Eastern establishment with the intensity of a, a thousand burning suns. The Committee of 100 is an interesting case study in the overlap between the Yankee and cowboy factions. It's an overlap that we've explored before, and it's one that grows larger and larger as the 1970s roll along until the two factions more or less merge completely in the Reagan and first Bush administrations. So while Nixon initially thought that the Committee of 100 was a collection of small local business owners, he found out that they were effectively a front for the financial interests of um, both the Southwest and the Northeast elites. You had the Chandler family who owned the, the Los Angeles Times. You had big oil interests from Texas, but he was also dealing with reps from JP Morgan, Standard Oil, the Bush-connected Dresser Industries, and so on and so forth. So the Yankees and Cowboys alike had they joined together effectively to puppeteer these small-time uh, Rotary Club types. And they intended to use California as a blank canvas where they could try and sketch out a new kind of network diagram of power that might be able to push back this New Deal social contract of the, the Roosevelt admin. And this was at the same time as Nixon was already connecting with syndicate figureheads and learning the art of, you know, the well-placed envelope full of money. So Nixon was a, a world-class case study in imposter syndrome. Um, he'd been born into a poor Quaker family and understandably he had a mortal terror of poverty. Um, he was racked with insecurity and neuroses and he wanted to be president of the United States even if it cost him his soul. Uh, you see, he never felt quite part of the inner circles of power that he served, and this anxiety about his status tormented him almost his entire career. And I, Actually, I was about to say just then that after he agreed uh, to the Committee of 100's proposal that he run against uh, Voorhis, he never looked back, but of course... Um, Richard Nixon's psyche was defined almost entirely by an obsessive need to look back on every dirty deal he'd ever cut with these people that he felt were so far above him in the pecking order and, you know, endlessly scrutinize who'd fucked him, who tried to fuck him and why and hold on to that and nurse that resentment and bitterness, you know, for years. Now, his rise was pretty rapid. Um, he carried water for Eisenhower and the Dulles brothers as vice president. And he was in fact recommended to Ike by that nexus of Eastern and Western figures in banking and oil and the private defense sector. And Ike actually altered the role of what a vice president was to what we see today. And it's fair to say that this was at least partly to accommodate the various interests that were aligned behind Nixon. And this is how he ended up overseeing something like Operation 40, which we discussed that in um, the American Tabloid series. And Operation 40 was one of the groups planning to retake Cuba from Castro that would end in the, the catastrophic Bay of Pigs invasion. 
and Nixon's subsequent losses to JFK in the 1960 election, and then Pat Brown in the 1962 governor race for California, played absolute hell with his self-doubt about his, you know, his destiny and his place in these upper echelons of society. So we previously discussed the 1960 election at length, so we don't need to get into that again. But what we could do is maybe think about how the 1962 governor's race offers a very interesting study of things to come. Uh, you had elements in the newly kind of emboldened radical right of the Republican Party, you know, the part of the base of uh, whom the, the Southwest oil tycoons wielded the most power. These are the, you know, the religious freaks and, and what would eventually morph into things like uh, um, the premillennial dispensationalists, you know, the Falwell Republicans, the QAnon sickers today. Um, so... They'd begun to view Nixon as having gone soft while in D.C. under Eisenhower. Um, and of, they thought that he was veering dangerously close to the liberal center and therefore potentially uh, the communist left. So, you know, Nixon decided that he was going to kind of, you know, race bait a little bit, red bait a little bit, kind of wink and a nod towards the most fascist elements of the, the GOP coalition. And then on the other side of the party, in response to this, what we might think of as the the Eastern establishment kind of liberal Republican wing, um, you know, the Rockefellers, the Morgans, the feeling there was that Nixon was playing a very dangerous game trying to appeal to these radical grassroots and trying to appease them. Uh, but the 1962 race because of these kind of, you know, this push-pull of the Northeasterners and the Southwesterners, the base, the bruising encounter with um, Pat Brown, it left him dejected, you know, sad Nixon, um, reinforcing that sensation of never quite being his own man um, and of never really being truly loved by the public or truly any, an insider in elite politics and elite games of power. So after his loss... Um, Nixon found a new role for himself as a senior partner at the New York law firm Mudge, Rose, Guthrie, Alexander, and Ferdin. Now, this is often called his wilderness years, this period of time. But this was, in fact, a golden opportunity for someone like him to network and begin setting up a deep power base that would come to serve him, you know, as he mulled over the idea of another run at the presidency. And his name and his reputation alone attracted scores of high-profile clients uh, to the firm. In 1963, its total income hovered at around $2.5 million. But once Nixon formally hopped on board in 1964, that shot way the hell up to $4 million because everybody who moved in these circles knew that Nixon was likely to run for the White House again. And all of them wanted to be able to say, you know, President Nixon used to be my lawyer. Um, so some of the people that he met during this time, so none other than William Mellon Hitchcock, who we talked about in the Ronald Stark episode, he availed himself of the firm's services. Um, and as we detailed in uh, Acid Spooks 2, Nixon and Hitchcock would both have dealings with Resorts International, which was the syndicate front that specialized in hotels and casinos in the Bahamas. Um, the pair of them are also said to have opened accounts at Castle Bank and Trust, which is a CIA front. And during these you know, so-called wilderness years, Nixon traveled overseas extensively. Uh, he established professional connections with other law firms and financial institutions in Europe. 
And one of the men that he met during this period was Mikhail Sindon. Uh, and you will remember him if you've been with the show from the beginning as the propaganda due financer who was initiated into the organization by none other than Licio Gelli himself. And Sindano was also a mentor of Banco Ambrosiano chairman Roberto Calvi. And he was close to David Kennedy, who would go on to be Nixon's secretary of the treasury. And curiously, Sindana also part owned the Watergate Hotel. So yeah, uh, we can't get into all of that here now, um, but we have already covered much of it in uh, the episode about God's banker, Roberto Calvi. So go check that out. I think it's it's one of the first six or seven episodes, if I'm not mistaken. Of course, Mikhail Sindana isn't even the only P2 Lodge member that Nixon was on friendly terms with. Um, there was another member of the Lodge called uh, Philip Guarino. He always denied being a P2 member, but it's pretty fucking obvious that he was. Um, he moved to Washington, D.C. from Italy at the end of World War II, and he opened an Italian restaurant. Uh, he'd had close links to Mussolini's fascist government, and he wound up becoming a Republican fundraiser and a chairman of a number of GOP groups, including Poppy Bush's campaign committee. Uh, and in all, he served four U.S. Republican presidents on, you know, sitting on various boards of advisors and groups of uh, concerned citizens and whatnot. And they were Nixon, obviously, Gerald Ford, Ronald Reagan, and Poppy. Naturally, he was in very deep with a number of Italian neo-Nazi groups beyond uh, P2. Rumors link him to outfits like Ardine Nuovo. And he occasionally worked for the CIA and the Sicilian Mafia. And I was totally, totally unsurprised to learn that he also founded a splinter faction of um, the Order of the Solar Temple called the Supreme Military Order of the Temple of Jerusalem. He also um, hosted a dinner for Licia Jelly the night of Reagan's inauguration and introduced them both. Now, I should point out here that Nixon had very little interest in uh, the, the quote-unquote uh, science of banking or economics. Um, what he cared about was collecting powerful friends like, you know, Sindona and Guarino, um, people who'd be useful to him. And the client list that he built up in New York, amongst that, you know, northeastern elite, he not so secretly despised with every atom in his body. Well, you know, that could only help him in a future bid for the White House. And in fact, he once told his wife, quote, I had no goddamn idea it was this easy to make money. Some jerk just paid me $25,000 for advice he could have gotten for free in the Wall Street Journal. So... 1968. Now, I'm reliably informed by Domhoff that it was actually Ronald Reagan and not Nixon who was the anointed one for this election, um, that he was the messiah the GOP power brokers wanted running. Um, but it was at a retreat at Bohemian Grove that Nixon engaged in a little, you know, a little last minute politicking with Reagan. And the pair of them reached an understanding, which was Reagan would only really turn on the razzle-dazzle during the primary if it seemed like Nixon wasn't going to make it all the way to the nomination. Um, and they presented this plan to their, their mutual allies in the Republican power base. Uh, what they proposed was, effectively, that no matter who got the nomination between Reagan and Nixon, the Committee of 100, you know, the Grove, uh, would still win. Um, 
and they were amenable to the idea. Now, a quick word about the use of terms here, because it might get a little bit confusing as we go along. Now, sometimes you'll hear or read about Nixon referring to this shadow group of ultra-wealthy, incredibly powerful people who backed him for his entire career. Uh, you'll, hear, you'll hear about him referring to those as the Committee of 100, uh, or sometimes the Easterners, and other times as the Bohemian Grove, the Bohemian Grove. Eventually, uh, he'd come to call it the beast, and we'll see why as we go along. Now, these terms were his way of describing the same network of deep actors and outfits that we've been tracking right from the beginning of our time in America on this show. So don't think he's talking about something completely out there and mystifying. Um, the Bohemian Grove or the Committee of 100, it's basically the same collection of spooks and business leaders and oil men and military higher-ups and um, the odd, especially powerful gangster that you know we've been discussing all along. I mean, I call it different things myself uh, at times just to avoid repetition, you know, the power elite, the Yankees and cowboys, the deep state. Um, basically, the people in American society who are so powerful that their voice is heard by politicians across the spectrum. Um, and U.S. policy, you know, both domestic and foreign, is actively shaped to accommodate their desires, no matter who is in office. And you know, barely a peep is ever raised about this from any public-facing institutions—not the courts or the press or law enforcement agencies. Nixon referred to them as the committee or the grove, and eventually the beast. But he accurately assessed that you know these outfits were just a small representation of a far bigger kind of shadow world of power. Nixon pretty much breezed the Republican primary, and he, he did it by calling in favors from sponsors like the Bush family, you know. And as ever, they were concerned with oil and with the oil depletion allowance and with shoring up and expanding their power inside the Republican pie. And Poppy Bush set to work securing the nomination for Nixon and acting as a rep, you know, not just for the Easterners, but also for the Southwest Cowboys, you know. And also, of course, that, that larger world of intelligence operatives with uh, close links to Wall Street. And he had John Tower, who was the Texas senator, endorse Nixon. And Nixon, in turn, rewarded Tower with control of his key issues committee, which gave the oil lobby a huge voice in the Nixon camp. And then next came Bill... Leidke, I think that's how you pronounce it. He was Poppy's old business partner at Zapata, and he was brought in as a fundraiser and finance coordinator. Now, Nixon wasn't ungrateful for the hell, exactly, but he was a deeply suspicious and compromised man. 
and he was put on the defensive when a series of endorsement letters started to arrive from high-level operators uh, on the East Coast, with all of them urging him to select Poppy as his running mate on the ticket. Now, Nixon yearned to pose as the benevolent statesman, uh, sitting impassively above the, you know, the, the petty tumult of party politics. Um, he saw his future administration as a kind of royal court where he would make wise rulings on important matters of state while his attack dogs did the dirty work that was unbefitting of a king. But at the same time, you know, he was as dirty as anyone in American politics. He possibly held inside knowledge pertaining to the JFK hit. And even if he didn't, he was deeply indebted to the powerful business interests and spooks and organized crime networks that he knew somehow had made that happen. By 1968, we should also be wondering what he may or may not have known about the RFK assassination and how knowledge of both Kennedy hits might have been affecting his thinking as well. Now, his presidency would ultimately prove to be an exercise in trying to kind of navigate these competing factions inside the Republican Party, which, you know, is part of the course if you are become president. So, you know, he found himself dodging Rockefeller and Bush operatives. But he was also having to keep a very wary eye on the intelligence community and the Wall Street financiers and capos in the military-industrial complex. He was also praying like hell that nobody looked too closely at his ties to outfits like Castle Bank or his relationship with syndicate kingpings like, you know, the West Coast Mafia bosses and Maya Lansky. Um, don't forget, you know, Lansky had hosted him as guest of honor at Resorts International and a lot of the West Coast Mafia guys had, you know, held a fundraising dinners for him and, and things like that. And, you know, now we can also add members of Italian neo-fascist Masonic lodges to the list of incredibly shady organizations that he was in some way connected to by the time that he was being sworn in as leader of the free world. So what does that do to a psyche? You know, obviously, you know, I don't want you to feel sorry for Richard Nixon of all people, but it is an intriguing thought all the same. The thing you've wanted your whole life is in touching distance and you've known since at least 1963 that you are entirely expendable to the people who really run the United States of America. Now for the Democrats, the withdrawal of Lyndon Johnson early on in the primary and the subsequent assassination of RFK and the growing split in the party and the base over Vietnam, it plunged them into crisis and the DNC convention in Chicago turned into a ultra-violent shit show and Nixon's campaign read the public mood perfectly you know so they promised to crack down on rising crime rates you know knock some sense into the hippie skulls heal a divided nation and draw down in Vietnam under a philosophy that he called peace with honor the silent majority and so on and so forth now he was helped in no small part by a host of shady political operators in D.C. who fed his campaign intelligence on what Lyndon Johnson, who was the sitting Democrat president and Nixon's opponent in the election, uh, Hubert Humphrey, were up to. Uh, Bryce Harlow was the kind of Beltway insider that Nixon distrusted and didn't like very much, although Nixon didn't really like any people. But um he distrusted people like that, but he relied on them an incredible amount. 
and Harlow had been his speechwriter in the 1960 election. And given his uh, vast web of contacts in D.C. and in the military and intelligence communities, he was a very valuable friend to have during an election campaign. And Harlow tipped Nixon off that Lyndon Johnson, uh, the incumbent president, had lied to Nixon when he assured him that he'd remain neutral uh, during, during the election. You see, an especially sensitive subject at this point was the ongoing bombing campaign in Vietnam. Now, Nixon's organization was concerned that if Johnson called a halt to it, this would be a, a diplomatic disaster, you know, humiliating for the United States and a sign of weakness to the Soviets. But there was also an unspoken additional concern that drawing down the bombing might give Humphrey, as the Democrat nominee, a Paul Bounce. And that could nudge him ahead. Uh, it would make the Democrats look like they were responding to pub growing public discontent with the war and they knew how to chart a route out of the quagmire. And Humphrey publicly distancing himself from support for Vietnam had started to turn the voters' heads, you know, and Nixon was agitated. So Johnson assured Nixon that unless the Viet Cong met three very specific conditions of his, the bombing campaign would continue. Now, according to Harlow's intelligence, Johnson actually had every intention of bringing the bombing to a halt, you know, a little, a little October surprise to get Humphrey out by a nose in a tight race. Nixon fired off a series of furious memos to the White House. The Soviets already disliked him. You know, they were aware of his prominent role in the Red Scare and his anti-communist stance. They were pressing the Viet Cong to engage in talks with the Johnson administration with a view to ending the war and keeping a guy they considered a snake and a maniac out of the White House. Now, Nixon's camp used the mob middleman and uh, political fixer Bebe Robozo, we've talked about him before, to make Johnson aware that they knew about his attempted rat fuck. And then... They decided to rat fuck the rat fuck by circumventing the White House and the Russians entirely. Uh, Nixon had no chance of talking to the Soviets or the Viet Cong, but he did have a line into the office of the South Vietnamese president, um, Nguyen Van Thieu, via a Chinese-American Republican fundraiser called Anna Cheno. Now, her husband, Claire Lee, had been a founding member of the Flying Tigers, which was the Chinese military group that fought against Japan in World War II for the Allies and was supported by the OSS and MI6. Uh, Cheno then also went on to create Air America, which was the CIA front that specialized in shipping dope and guns in and out of the Golden Triangle in Southeast Asia. And he helped organize and supply radical anti-communist stay behind networks uh, in the region, you know, to fight against the Chinese communists. Now, Anna herself was a very canny political networker and she was kind of, she was kind of hip to the ways of deep intrigue. Uh, she was part of the China lobby in the Republican party. And along with Lewis King, who was another influential member of the lobby, she went to work on to you. And sure enough, just nine days later, he abandoned the peace talks um, with the North Vietnamese and they founded. The Democrats were also facing a threat in the form of the Southern strategy, you know, where Nixon's team developed a race baiting culture war to appeal to disaffected Southern Democrat voters with the long term 
goal of fracturing this New Deal coalition. You know, the very, the very raison d'etre of the new right and these incredibly powerful financiers of, of the Republican Party. But once he was finally in office, Nixon, he started to unnerve his supporters and his enemies by circumventing the usual channels of influence and diplomacy completely. Now, he'd already begun to exhibit a more independent streak during the election campaign. Uh, So to limit the influence of that Eastern establishment, he'd actually snubbed their suggestions that he bring Poppy Bush on board as his vice president, and he opted for Spiro Agnew instead. Um, Russ Baker, he describes this choice as being driven primarily by two uh, points of interest on Nixon's part. The first is that Agnew was no threat to him whatsoever. The second was that Nixon was looking for, as he put it, assassination insurance and, you know, make of that what you will. Now, Poppy was angry, but he hit it well. But Prescott Bush lost his fucking mind. And this, because this was coming only a few years after his best friend, Alan Dulles, had been publicly humiliated by JFK in the wake of the, the Bay of Pigs. And now it was his own family be humiliated by Nixon. And Nixon was supposed to be his man. You know, Nixon was in the White House to serve people like Prescott Bush. So Nixon also reached out to China. You know, he took advantage of this tense relationship between Beijing and Moscow that had developed. And when he actually met with the Chinese premier, uh, Zhu Enlai, Nixon made a point of shaking his hand. And for people in the loop, this was a none too subtle rebuke of John Foster Dulles, who'd refused to do the same thing when he met Zhu in Geneva. It also served as a kind of neat assertion of Nixon's independence from the shadow networks, you know, a gesture in line with the the lofty and king-like president that he'd envisioned himself being. But what really put his backers on edge was the apparent success of this overture to the Chinese, uh, because not long afterwards, the Soviets also sought to engage with the states in a more positive way. And given that, you know, anti-communism and the perpetuation of the Cold War to keep raking in, you know, like defense contracts and uh, imperial wars of resource extraction and the like, that was basically the Emma of the CIA and the, the powerful financial interests that they serve. This was bound to trigger an extremely hostile reaction. And for his part, Nixon was forever on alert for threats and hints of disloyalty from his staff right from the get-go. So he tried to appease the various factions in his coalition with the usual job appointments and policy concessions, you know, Pennzoil fundraisers, landed gigs on the Federal Power Commission, Harry S. Dent, who'd been the architect of the Republican Southern Strategy, he was appointed chief advisor. A couple of Bush family friends and Ivy League Blue Bloods, Rogers Martin and Jimmy Allison, they were given top posts in the Republican National Committee. And this tightrope act, you know, trying to balance the competing demands of, you know, Yankees and Cowboys, that was the hallmark of his first term in office. But what unnerved a broad swathe of both camps was Nixon's appointment of Henry Kissinger as his national security advisor, because it was with Kissinger's help that Nixon began this to act more independently 
you know, in terms of foreign policy without the deference that his support base felt that they were owed. So Kissinger was a Rockefeller favorite and he was a council on foreign relations guy. And to this day, you know, he refuses to die. And he and Nixon effectively cut the Pentagon and the CIA and the State Department out of the foreign policy decision-making loop. And they were determined to develop their own kind of rolling program of war crimes and atrocities as they went along. Uh, and this became known as the so-called Nixon Doctrine. The doctrine was supposed to square the circle of how the U.S. could support its allies around the world even as Vietnam drained U.S. manpower and military resources. And their solution was to supply friendly local forces with American aid and training, largely through the CIA, and let these guys fight for themselves. Um, and of course, the thinking was that the occasional CIA wet work squad could be sent in for some neat surgical killings, but generally it was a help-them-to-help-themselves spirit that was supposed to prevail. It didn't really, but... This, this was the idea. Uh, so, you know, an example of this slightly more hands-off approach would be the coup against Allende in Chile. That's uh, an example of this, this new model imperial management strategy where the CIA were tasked with indirectly fomenting his overthrow. And despite the Nixon doctrine, in March of 1969, he still went ahead and initiated Operation Menu, which was a secret bombing campaign in Vietnam that eventually expanded to Cambodia and morphed into Operation Freedom Dial, which was you know, complete with U.S. ground troops. So tens of thousands of Vietnamese and Cambodian civilians were killed during these campaigns. So peace with honor was apparently moved to the back burner at this point. Nixon was also an occasional proponent of the madman theory of international diplomacy at times, which we discussed in our, our Ronald Stark episode. So... I should point out here that Kissinger was kind of a Rockefeller emissary and the, the Rockefellers represent, you know, the kind of liberal part of the, the Republican um, pie. And they weren't entirely opposed to the idea of detente with the Soviet Union, but they were opposed to things like the madman theory of international uh, diplomacy. Um, and a reason why might be, an example might explain why. Um, so there was an operation that Nixon launched called Operation Giant Lance. Uh, he ordered 18 B-52 bombers loaded with nukes to patrol the Arctic and deliberately inflame tensions with the Soviets. And the purpose of this was to scare Moscow and North Vietnam enough to bring them to the negotiating table and end the war on terms that were favorable to the Americans. Um, and another example I've got, and with this one, take this with a pinch of salt because it comes from a CIA spook called George Carver. But apparently, uh, another time after North Korea shot down an American spy plane, Nixon got hammered and ordered an immediate nuclear strike on Pyongyang. Kissinger then called the Joint Chiefs of Staff a few minutes later and told them to cancel the order until the president had served up. So the madman theory of international politics is, you know, it's pretty clearly reckless. And I've read that the Joint Chiefs were wondering if they could use this as an excuse to move against him and push him out of office. So, you know, effectively do a coup. 
while detente with the Soviets and even a withdrawal from Vietnam might have been palatable on some level with the Rockefeller-type Republicans, you know, playing 4D chess with live nuclear warheads was not something that they were particularly interested in. And with someone like Kissinger, who was prone to feed information to whoever, you know, kept his lights on, then they will have certainly been aware of incidents like this. For all that, though, Kissinger and Nixon did seem to have some kind of vision uh, of, a, at least to them, a coherent and logical foreign policy. Uh, Kissinger even acknowledged that they had no intention of sharing this, this bigger picture uh, objective with um, you know, like the Joint Chiefs or the Pentagon or anything. And they even said that the, the reason they chose William Rogers as Secretary of State was precisely because he knew nothing about foreign policy. He wasn't particularly interested in learning and he was unlikely to possess any useful information if he was actually braced by the assets that the Pentagon and Langley had infiltrated into the Nixon White House. So as a way around this, the Pentagon then set up a channel of communication between the National Security Council and the Joint Chiefs without telling Nixon. It wasn't, wasn't that they were opposed to the chaos and huge loss of civilian life that you know Nixon's secret war in Cambodia was unleashing, um, but there were established ways of doing things and they felt disrespected and undermined by Nixon and Kissinger. Um, and his entire administration basically devolved into factional battles for control of the U.S. imperial machine. So, of course, as we mentioned, Nixon was also seeking some kind of detente with the Soviet Union, even as he ramped up the ultraviolence against its allies. And this attempt at a, uh, a rapprochement with the Russians alarmed the Southwest conservatives most of all. Um, and I find this quite interesting because I don't think it should have been as big a surprise as they felt it was. Um, in fact, Nixon had used a lakeside talk at Bohemian Grove a full year before the election to publicly rehearse a speech that he wound up giving to the Hoover Institute on the 50th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution. And according to Richard J. Whalen, one of his speechwriters, Nixon said that he wanted uh, what he called, quote, a sophisticated hardline, uh, which is to say he didn't want what Whalen described as a typically Nixonian anti-communist rant. Uh, now, the speech itself is, of course, you know, it's full of anti-communist invective and, and galling bullshit. But that said, this section is quite interesting, quote, Economically, we should have a policy which encourages more trade with the Soviet Union and Eastern European countries. We must recognize, however, that to them, trade is a political weapon. I believe in building bridges, but we should build only our end of the bridge. For example, there should be no extension of long-term credits or trade in strategic items with any nation, including the Soviet Union, that aids the enemy in North Vietnam. Diplomatically, we should have discussions with the Soviet leaders at all levels to reduce the possibility of miscalculation and to explore the areas where bilateral agreements would reduce tensions. But we must always remember in such negotiations that our goal is different from theirs. We seek peace as an end in itself, 
they seek victory with peace being at this time a means towards that end. In sum, we can live in peace with the Soviet Union, but until they give up their goal for world conquest, it will be for them a peace of necessity and not of choice. So, you know, you've got here, despite all the bluster and, you know, the the sophisticated hardline aspects, you still do have him talking about building bridges, diplomatic discussions, the possibility of living in peace with the Russians, agreements to reduce tensions. So it's difficult to emphasize just how much even these tiny, tiny morsels of softer rhetoric would have alarmed or should have alarmed the more hardline captains of industry at the Grove. But they supported his nomination anyway. And all I can think is that they didn't think he was serious when he was talking like this. So it was all these deals with the shadow networks that kept Nixon awake into the wee hours of the night, you know, hammering the booze and ranting into his tape recorders. He was always thinking about who knew what and how much of it, who owed him a favor and what did he owe them, which bills were coming due and who was really conspiring against him and who wasn't, you know, who could he really trust? Journalists looked askance when, you know, he pardoned Jimmy Hoffa on December 23rd, 1971. And a few of them had enough wherewithal to remember those rumors about Nixon that went all the way back to World War II about bootleg tire schemes with Miami gangsters and fundraising dinners hosted by Mickey Cohen and Jack Dragner. There were also those connections he had with businessmen and international bankers, you know, that indirectly connected him to gangland elder statesmen like Maya Lansky and mafia bankers like Sindana. And given, you know, Hoffa's own mafia ties, the question was asked, was this possibly another dirty deal? Um, but the thing is, Hoffa's early release was actually, it was detrimental to the mob's interests. Um, he'd already drawn way too much attention to syndicate activity and what they were involved in with the Teamsters Pension Fund. And the families would have preferred that he finish his sentence, if anything. So Nixon's pardon, you know, could cause trouble for them. Plus, once he was in the White House, Nixon uh, pursued organized crime Fairly vigorously, uh, he announced a $61 million funding package for the Justice Department, a new legislation he had to tackle the mob, and he launched a recruitment drive that added a 1,000 extra federal agents to the payroll. And his staff even compelled people like Tony Accardo and Lansky and Tony Ricci to testify under oath about a series of meetings they'd held in Los Angeles to choose a successor to New York boss uh, Vito Genovese. So the question is, what was Nixon's thinking here? Um, was all this just Nixon kind of trying to hide his own links to the syndicate? Um, remember that we covered how the CIA was having a change of heart regarding its relationship with the mob uh, in the late 60s. So could they also be getting in his ear and winning him round to the idea that the influence of organized crime on policy would need to be curtailed and rolled back? 
Or could it be that, you know, he was again being driven by that need to prove that he was his own man, uh, that he was beholden to no one now that he was in the White House? Uh, why not a little of all three of these? You know what I'm saying? So Hoffer had been sent down for 13 years for jury tampering and witness intimidation and racketeering and fraud. And his pardon after five years inside didn't come from a place of benevolence. Um, Nixon's asking price is said to have been somewhere between 200000 uh, and a cool million dollars. And there were also some conditions attached to the early release that Frank Fitzsimmons, who was Hoffa's successor as boss of the Teamsters, and Nixon's intermediaries uh, worked out between themselves. So Hoffa wasn't allowed to engage in union activity until 1980. He wasn't to have any contact with his Teamster brothers or his friends in organized crime, the few that were remaining at this point. And more than anything, he was to keep his mouth shut and accept the million-dollar pension that he was offered. Naturally, Hoffa wasn't interested in staying quiet. And by 1973, he was planning to take over the Teamsters again and he filed a lawsuit against the government to reverse the conditions that had been imposed on him in exchange for the pardon. So John Dean, one of Nixon's hatchet men, who was already feeling the heat after appearing in court over Watergate, uh, he was called to give a deposition in 1974. Now, Hoffa eventually lost the case, but he was determined to get his old job back, and it was pretty clear that the mob had a problem. So a year later, he disappeared after agreeing to a peace meeting with a Genovese captain called Tony Provenzano in Detroit. Despite his uh, rabid paranoia, Nixon continued to trust Poppy Bush, even though his CIA ties, his family connections, and his ambition were very obvious threats to Nixon's power. Uh, Poppy seemed to have a way of talking Nixon around on certain issues too, and this probably owing to this leverage. So as a House representative in 1969, Poppy was an especially prominent voice for the oil industry. And when word spread that Congress was once again looking to reform the oil depletion allowance, Bush personally flew out to Nixon's summer house and convinced him to kill the proposals. And then in 1970, Bush persuaded Nixon to make him the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations instead of a senior advisor uh, with an eye on padding out his resume for a, an eventual shot at the White House. And Nixon agreed again. My sense is that um, Nixon might have felt that keeping Poppy close was better than keeping him on the outside, uh, particularly since Prescott Bush and his friends knew where a lot of bodies were buried in Nixon's past. And he was still, you know, trying to repair the uh, the damage, the fallout from snubbing Poppy. So he was also confronted with a business and intelligence community that he knew from experience he couldn't trust. Uh, as president, your choice is basically lose-lose, you know, if you want to do your job properly. If you keep them at arm's length, uh, the discontent builds and they're liable to make a move against you. Uh, so just look at JFK for that. But if you bring them into the palace, a large amount of your policymaking ability is permanently compromised. And then, of course, even if you do keep them out, they still have a range of ways to penetrate your organization and, and embed assets and agents in your staff anyway. Uh, so as Russ Baker writes, quote, a battle to control the soul of the president, not unusual in any administration, was underway. 
while the conservative, hawkish, independent oilmen thought Nixon was insufficiently loyal to their cause, the Rockefeller Republicans felt the same from their side. Writing in the Dallas Morning News, Robert Baskin noted fears among the Eastern corporate elite that Nixon was being dominated by the right wing. A few months later, Baskin further underlined the point in an article headlined Divisiveness Within GRP Rising. In truth, Nixon's reign was a highly complicated one, far from doctrinaire, with issues handled on a case-by-case basis. Thus, Attorney General John Mitchell could say the administration was against busing but for desegregation. Nixon himself could complain about people in his administration being too tough on corporations, yet his Justice Department aggressively pursued antitrust actions that angered industry. He also produced a series of liberal-leaning reforms, including creating the Environmental Protection Agency and the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And Nixon implemented the first major affirmative action program. But some of his Supreme Court nominees leaned far to the right, and when Nixon and his Attorney General championed tough law and order tactics against political protesters and dissidents. His presidency was a mixed bag, meaning no one was entirely happy, and everyone perceived someone else as having the inside track. So we have in Nixon a classic land of contrast. We have a war criminal and a right-wing anti-communist hardliner. But we also have the creator of the Environmental Protection Agency seeking peace with the Soviet Union and sending word through back channels to mobsters connected to the Teamsters when he needs goons to crack skulls at anti-war protests. And then eyebrows rose again when uh, following the lead of his Federal Reserve Chairman, Arthur Burns, Nixon declared himself a Keynesian. Uh, He effectively took the states off the Bretton Woods system, you know, where the dollar was tied to gold. And he advocated for more intervention in the economy. Uh, and he's, a, he's supposed to be a Republican. You know, the Nixon project had been financed from the very beginning, in large part by people who wanted the New Deal consensus torn up and replaced with a renewed emphasis on uh, liberal free markets. So this was bound to ruffle feathers. And this shift occurred at a time of increasing Uh, economic instability. Uh, Unemployment was at 6.1%. Inflation was at 5.84%. And what became known as the Nixon shock, uh, the changes to Bretton Woods, a 90-day wage and price freeze and a 10% import surcharge that was designed to pull the economy out of the doldrums. It just about worked in the short term, but it eventually led to the the stagflation of the mid-70s, which was compounded by the OPEC oil crisis of 73 when the organization of Arab petroleum exporting oil companies imposed an oil embargo due to the the Yom Kippur war. Now, in the build-up to this war, this is quite an interesting um, moment in the Nixon administration because in the build-up to this, the U.S. government was distracted and confused. You had Nixon's White House that was being battered by the unfolding Watergate scandal. It was in full-on siege mentality mode. It was dealing with economic crises and sudden resignations of key people like Spiro Agnew. Uh, The deep state was also split on what to do uh, because Israel was a key bridge into the Middle East. You know, it was a strategic ally in what they insist on calling the, the unfriendly neighborhood. But Saudi Arabia 
was also an important business partner and a source of oil for the US. And while the detente that Nixon had reached with the Soviets was still extremely fragile as well. So he eventually authorized the delivery of weapons and military equipment to Israel under Operation Nickelgrass. And the Saudis responded with the embargo. Uh, so by March of 1974, the price of a barrel of oil had jumped about 300%. And the economic good times that had fueled much of what uh, we think of as the 60s, that was finished. And Poppy Bush and the, the rising neoconservatives uh, in American politics, guys like Paul Wolfowitz and Richard Pearl, they would work diligently behind the scenes to repair the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia throughout the 1970s and make a shitload of money in the process. Now, right from the start of his first term, Nixon began pushing the CIA for more information about what exactly had gone down in Dallas in 1963. Now, he probably knew the broad outlines, of course, but he was the kind of guy who needed to know the specifics, the details. And again, you know, given his innate paranoia uh, and how things were going in his administration, it makes sense that he wanted to learn from whatever mistakes Kennedy had made and judge for himself how uh, the Grove might put together a move against him if he fell out of favor. He also wanted the CIA's files on the Bay of Pigs invasion and the hit on Rafael Trujillo. John Ehrlichman, the guy we mentioned earlier, he was the, the White House's chief counsel. He was sent to Langley to request all the relevant documents. And six months later, the CIA still hadn't sent a single file to Nixon's office. And as Ehrlichman told Bob Alderman, uh, again, uh, part of the, the Berlin Wall, as they were nicknamed, quote, the agency dug their heels in and told me the president can't have the records. Imagine that. The commander-in-chief wants to see a document and the spooks say he can't have it. From the way they're protecting it all, it must be pure dynamite. And it wasn't just that the CIA was refusing to cooperate with Nixon, however. They'd also infiltrated his staff and Nixon had let it happen in large part. Um, in July of 1971, Everett Howard Hunt, our old friend, uh, CIA agent, Bay of Pigs veteran. He joined the Special Investigations Group, which was an outfit designed to stop leaks from the Nixon administration. SIG were also known as the plumbers because of this, you know, fixing leaks. Um, they were overseen by Gordon Liddy, a lifelong deep state sicko. Liddy drew up a number of extremely outlandish operations that were intended to target Democrats and radical subversive elements in American society. And these eventually came to be known as Operation Gemstone. Plans included kidnapping, especially prominent radical activists and dumping them in Mexico. So they couldn't cause trouble at the Republican National Convention. And he also thought about paying underage prostitutes to sleep with Democrat politicians while hidden cameras filmed everything. And he also had a massive wiretap and surveillance operation against DNC officials in mind and a number of Democrat offices that he wanted to break into to gather intelligence and plant bugs. Now John Dean, who was White House counsel, and John Mitchell, who was the attorney general, they heard him out and they suggested, you know, scale back the scope of this just a tad and just keep it limited to the wiretapping and surveillance. 
and SIG also organized the burglary of um, Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office in order to find some compromising material on Ellsberg. Uh, he'd been the one who leaked the Pentagon Papers. Now, Hunt was amongst the first generation of CIA. Uh, he joined the agency in 1949, and we've mentioned before that he was one of their, their go-to dirty jobs men. Uh, he helped organize and train the Cuban exile group, Brigade 2506. He was also adept at manipulating and shaping news media to further the agency's goals. He was also alleged to be one of the, the three tramps that were spotted in Dealey Plaza on the day of the JFK assassination. In fact, on his deathbed, his sons claimed that he confessed to his involvement and described a French gunman as being the second shooter on the grassy knoll. And for what it's worth, uh, the Los Angeles Times uh, examined these claims and they admitted that they couldn't disprove them, which, I mean, that's as close as mainstream media really gets to admitting uh, an, an uncomfortable truth. Now, for all of Hunt's involvement, in these kinds of ops and his apparent closeness to people like Alan Dulles and William F. Buckley Jr. It's important to remember that he wasn't considered part of the Georgetown set at Langley, um, that inner circle of Ivy League bluebuds. Uh, Hunt was seen as a mechanic, a tool uh, that the agency could pick up and discard as it saw fit. And he knew on some level that he would always be expendable, but you know the thrill of covert action, social and career advancements uh, that were opened up to him from partaking in these operations. Well, he apparently deemed that worth the trade-off. Um, and this probably explains why he wound up doing 33 months in prison for his role in Watergate. And one of Hunt's first uh, dirty jobs for the Nixon administration came when he was asked to break into the apartment of a guy called Arthur Bremer. Uh, Bremer had tried to assassinate George Wallace at a campaign rally in Maryland in May of 1972. And Wallace was a Southern Democrat and an arch segregationist. Nixon was apparently deeply concerned that Bremer might turn out to be connected in some way to the Republican Party or the Nixon administration. You see, by 1972, Nixon had grown increasingly fearful that he was about to be fitted up in some way and that the Grove was planning to move against him. Hunt claims that he refused the request to break into to Bremer's place, but a curious episode occurred in the aftermath of the attempted hit when the FBI agents who were guarding Bremer's apartment mysteriously disappeared for 19 minutes, which gave an unidentified group of people, a couple of them posing as journalists, time enough to enter and leave with a number of documents that have never resurfaced. When the feds returned, they suddenly found a diary in Bremer's bedroom where he supposedly detailed at length how he wanted to kill either George Wallace or Richard Nixon. And when Nixon heard about this, he lost his mind. Um, and you can't help but wonder if the diary was meant to be found and its contents were meant to be divulged to the, the increasingly unhinged president. So we should also probably talk about the townhouse operation a little bit here, uh, because it certainly appears to have been an early dry run in uh, fitting up Nixon for a fall. And in short, the townhouse operation was an oddly complicated blackmail scheme that involved funneling envelopes with $6,000 in cash from wealthy donors to certain Republican candidates. And again, 
Poppy Bush and the other CIA operatives are lurking just out of frame with this story. Uh, most of the principal actors were connected to him or the SIG. In fact, the guy who suggested the operation to Nixon's aides was an oil man who was on the verge of bankruptcy called John M. King. He just so happened to be quite close to the Bush family. And Bush himself even accepted one of the envelopes, um, possibly, you know, to disguise his role in connecting King with the Nixon staff in the first place. Now, the idea was that whoever accepted the cash was immediately compromised. And the official line has it that Nixon used it to muscle GOP politicians into supporting his policies. But the problem is there's very little evidence that Nixon was really aware of the operation until after it had been conducted. And the genius part of the plan is that it appealed to his pathological inability to come clean about anything and, you know, his fetish for secrecy and schemes. So there was no way he wouldn't go along with it once the horse had bolted. And as with Watergate, his unwillingness to come clean meant that he had no choice but to implicate himself by going along with the cover-up. And the only reason it didn't become as big a scandal as it could have is possibly due to the American media's desperate urge to believe that Nixon really was going to prove to be the great unifier of a fractured country, you know. And the basic fact that the scheme was so ridiculously complex, it was difficult to, to kind of break it down into easily digestible sound bites for the public. Uh, this isn't a mistake, by the way, that they'd make with Watergate, uh, which was a much sexier and more obviously filthy series of crimes. So the townhouse operation was carried out in 1970, which suggests that it only took a year for the Grove or the Power Elite, whatever you want to call it, to decide that they backed the wrong horse. Uh, but Nixon wasn't the only high-level player who was feeling the heat at this time in the early 70s. Um, his old pal, J. Edgar Hoover, uh, well, he was sinking deeper and deeper into a rabbit warren of conspiracism. He helped fuel Nixon's fears that he was besieged on all sides by powerful enemies, uh, and he did this by feeding him every last scrap of anti-Nixon rumor and gossip that he came across. So he, you know, he was spinning tales of CBS journalists and New York Democrats conspiring to take down the administration. He wove grand conspiracies of drug-addled hippies and black radicals plotting the overthrow of America. And in return, Nixon gave the FBI even more freedom to conduct counterintelligence operations against the left. And he added more and more names to his enemies list. So COINTELPRO, along with the CIA's chaos program, they effectively were a kind of domestic Phoenix program um, and FBI agents were free to infiltrate counterculture groups, harass targets, commit perjury, break into private homes, conduct warrantless surveillance and searches and beyond. One of the more prominent victims of, of all this was Fred Hampton, you know, the, the Black Panther leader. Uh, he was assassinated by Chicago police working in tandem with FBI agents in December of 1969. Nixon's deputy attorney general, uh, Richard Kleindiest, secretly worked with the feds to cover up their role in the hit. So I think we probably need to start bringing this plan into land now. Um, and a way to do that is by thinking about a piece of advice that Nikita Khrushchev gave Nixon during a diplomatic summit. He told Nixon, quote, 
if the people believe there's an imaginary river out there, you don't tell them there is no river. You build an imaginary bridge to cross the imaginary river. Nixon was already president by the time Khrushchev told him this, but you know, in his own way, he'd spent a career building these invisible bridges to cross imaginary rivers. Uh, so think about his role in the Red Scare and the Eisenhower administration, you know, chasing imaginary reds, planning coups to overthrow imaginary threats to the US. Uh, his victory in 68 that came largely from his promises to a silent majority. Uh, preying on the fears of civil war and societal breakdown. And then once in office, Nixon was beset by fears of conspiracy. And for every real threat to his power, he was also happy to imagine another two or three that were even worse. Watergate and Nixon's resignation brought the American system into sharp relief for a lot of people. And as Frank Rich writes in the New York Times, quote, the major mid-70s disruptions, the Watergate hearings and Richard Nixon's abdication, Roe versus Wade, the frantic American evacuation of Saigon, stagflation, the dawn of the energy crisis, then a newly minted term, were adulterated with a steady stream of manufactured crises and cheesy cultural phenomena. Americans suffered through the threat of killer bees, Deep Throat, the Symbionese Liberation Army, a national meat boycott, the Exorcist, Moonies, and the punishing self-help racket to which a hustler named Werner Erhard attracted followers as diverse as the yippie Jerry Rubin and the Apollo astronaut Buzz Aldrin. Even the hapless would-be presidential assassins of the Ford years, Lynette Squeaky From and Sarah Jane Moore, were B-list villains by our national standards of infamy. I must say to you that the state of our union is not good. Our unelected president, Gerald Ford, told the nation in January of 1975. That was true enough. America's largest city was going bankrupt. Urban crime was metastasizing. The CIA was exposed as a snake pit of lethal illegality. The nostalgic canonization of the Kennedy presidency, the perfect antidote to the Nixon stench, was befouled by the revelation of Jack Kennedy's mob mall paramour. Yet the mood of the union was not so much volatile as defeated, whiny and riddled by self-doubt. As Americans slouched towards the bicentennial celebrations of July 4th, 1976, pundits were wondering whether the country even deserved to throw itself a birthday party. Everyone wanted to be somewhere else. presidency and you know despite the dubious official narrative of Watergate Nixon's pardon effectively cemented his connection to the scandal in the public's imagination and therefore it made it easier to consign him and the whole sorry affair to the grim murkiness of the early 70s but 
for a brief window of time after he left office, you know, in the wake of Vietnam and the revelations about the CIA and the FBI, America did actually have the opportunity to honestly reckon with itself and with what it had been doing to its people since the end of World War II. There was ample time for self-reflection and, you know, a painful but overdue conversation about what the American experiment was actually trying to achieve. But that window was closed, possibly forever, by a former B-movie actor armed with expensive speechwriters and corny Hollywood-fried charisma. Um, the intro to the show used to be Hurdy Gurdy Man by Donovan and... Uh, I never realized until I was putting this episode together that Ronald Wilson Reagan actually was a real-life hurdy-gurdy man. Um, he was an outsider candidate who was largely seen as a jerk by DC insiders and the press when he announced that he was going to run for president. Um, he found support in the ascendant religious right and a scared and confused middle America, and he came singing songs of love you know, about the innate goodness of America and capitalism and shining cities on hills. And his amorality and empty-headedness were pretty much perfect tools for the American elite. And Poppy Bush, uh, frustrated in the 1980 Republican primaries, maneuvered to have himself installed as Reagan's running mate. And, you know, if the stories are to be believed, he was effectively the real power in the Reagan administration. Uh, Post-Watergate, Nixon was so ostracized that at one point he only had $500 in the bank. Uh, I'm sure on some level he considered himself lucky that JFK had only been killed five years before his first term, uh, which made his own assassination possibly too risky a proposition. But Watergate offered a, a neat solution. You know, it was a, a little outside the box thinking from Langley there. And it probably needs pointing out that pulling off two successful coups inside 10 years in what's supposed to be the biggest democracy on earth is no mean feat, really. Uh, and to this day, if you describe either Dallas or Watergate as coups, people will look at you sideways, you know. But um, he eventually got out from under. And with his memoir, which became a bestseller, and his reputation slowly restored as the 1980s rolled on, he ended up becoming looked upon almost like a, an elder statesman of uh, American politics. The 1980s, though, would reflect this psychedelic transformation that the American shadow state had undergone between the late 60s and the late 70s. Uh, during the Reagan administration, the corruption was more over and grotesque than ever, but a tide of lunatic jingoism and brainless appeals to the lowest common denominator kind of helped everybody stop thinking too much about what the US government was involved in everywhere from South America to the Middle East. These were the years of the octopus uh, when the American deep state slipped the leash completely and it became a fully transnational um, outfit. It was a, a mind-warping global network of state and private intelligence agencies, emerging Silicon Valley companies, terrorist groups, venture capitalists, financiers, and military contractors. Uh, basically a collection of true uh, meta groups in the Peter Dale Scott sense of the term. 
And today it's even more bewilderingly complex and, and mind warping than it was then. And in the 80s, it rode a wave of gore and ultraviolence to unbelievable levels of power and wealth, uh, tentacles reaching absolutely everywhere from banking to tech to oil to drugs to terrorism to politics. And Reagan, with his grandiose appeals to American destiny and his carefully engineered aura of grandfatherly benevolence, would be the perfect frontman for what was effectively a, a new world order um, for the final destruction really of the post-war consensus for the hard pivot into mass privatization and outsourcing and neoliberal barbarism. So that about does it for Nixon and his uh, presidency. Hopefully you got a nice feel for the madness and darkness, uh, not just of his time in office, but also of the the country that he was, or that he thought he was presiding over. Um, hopefully as well, I've also set up a few tantalizing threads that we'll be pursuing in our next miniseries uh, in the new year. Uh, that'll be about mid to late January, definitely no later than early February. Uh, it'll be the last miniseries covering America before we return to Europe. So I'm aiming for it to be a big fuck off blowout, you know, um, and somewhat fittingly, it'll be starting in the, the 80s, essentially. So it's kind of fitting, really, that it'd be a big bombastic fireworks show before we catch a, a podcasting airplane back to uh the continent from which I hail. So yeah, next week we'll be doing either the Phoenix program or a Hollywood ghost stories. Uh, it depends which one I finish in time. Um, if you have a preference, just let me know and I'll endeavor to try and finish that one sooner. Uh, and apologies again for the lateness of this episode, but you know, I hope it was worth the wait. So yeah, season of the witch continues apace. The next installment of it will be next week. As ever, leave us a rating and review on iTunes if you haven't already. Uh, sub to the Patreon if you like the show and you can spare the bread. Urge on friends and loved ones and don't get captured. Thanks, guys. I'll catch you next week.